Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely of the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today, we're joined by my friend, Lindsay Marie. She is a columnist at Town Hall, a contributor to Young Voices, and a visiting fellow at Lone Star Policy Institute. Lindsay, thanks for uh, rejoining the show. Thanks for having me back. So today, we want to talk about a few things. One of the first things we want to talk about is Justin Amash. He just uh, announced his presidential exploratory committee. And we also wanted to move on and talk a little bit about the uh, Food and Drug Administration, what their role has been in the response to coronavirus. And we may touch on a few other things like uh, Shelley Luther, the famous or infamous uh, beautician out of Dallas who illegally opened her salon, Salon a la mode, uh, before the... Uh, Pre- the, before the governor's orders were lifted, so let's let's start with Justin Amash. Um, explain to us his path to the presidency. It's <laughs> a very loaded question, Doug. Um, I think you'd actually have to ask him that. Um, he claims that he would not run if he didn't think there was a path to victory for himself. So obviously, he's seen something that makes him think that would happen. Um, I've seen people speculate that the only way maybe he would win is if it was thrown to the house. Um, so I think it's really too early to tell what the best path would be, um, but he seems to think that there is one. So, uh, you know, I put it this way. I, I've, I've sort of on my own, I've speculated a bit that about the only way that Justin Amash could actually win the presidency is if if both presidential candidates face some, uh, you know, maybe credible allegations of rape or some other uh, outrageous controversy. Do you see anything like that potentially happening? No, I think that even if, you know, worse allegations did come out, I think that Democrats are going to continue to vote for Biden and um, Republicans are going to continue to vote for Trump. I saw an op-ed probably a week ago in the New York Times from a well-known feminist who basically said, I believe Tara Reid, but she said um, that she believes that they should elect Biden because that's more important than Tara Reid and the voices of other potential victims which it's really sad that she's coming out and admittedly saying that, but that's where a lot of uh, Democrats are right now. So one of the things that I often see uh, people respond to is uh, that when someone like Justin Amash um, announces their run, that this is, this is inevitably going to get Donald Trump reelected. And I also see the critique that this is inevitably going to get Joe Biden elected. Who do you think that Justin Amash actually takes votes from? I really don't think he takes votes from anybody. Um, I mean, first of all, if you look back a couple of months, the Democrats were praising him because he was, you know, pro-impeachment. Other months, you know, the Republicans loved him because he was fiscally conservative and a constitutionalist. Um, So both sides at some point or another sort of did like him. But I think for the most part, you know, he's going to get the libertarian vote and that wouldn't have gone to the other two parties anyways. Um, You know, he could get some votes from some independents and potentially never Trumpers. Um, but I don't think it's going to be significant whatsoever. It's going to be those voters who are, they want both, you know, fiscal and social freedom. And right now they don't have that option with the two candidates given to them. At this point, we know that Joe Biden is, is the presumptive nominee. The, the Democrats haven't had a convention and we, we know with almost near absolute uh, a certainty that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee, but it's not as clear when it comes to Justin Amash. I mean, the uh, Libertarian Party hasn't actually had a convention, 
and it was supposed to be in Austin. So what is the process for the Libertarian Party actually picking their nominee? Yeah, so the Austin convention was canceled. Um, That was, I believe, done by the hotel, um, given the social distancing requirements in Texas or, you know, whatever locality they have there. Um, But at this point, I think the LP is still trying to determine how they want to move forward. There was allegedly some like eight or 12 hour executive session the other day, which I did not participate or uh, log in for. Um, But I think they're going to do a convention that's virtual and then also one in person later down the road. But the process is still going to be the same as if it were, you know, held in Austin. Um, Whoever is going to be the nominee has to get a certain amount of votes. And the other thing that's different about the Libertarian Party is that the nominee does not get to pick his vice presidential candidate. The party actually does. So that's also always a little bit of a contentious battle for some people. Um, It definitely was for Gary Johnson. He wanted Bill Weld to be his running mate, and the party was very much against it the first couple rounds of voting, but eventually they did give in. Do we? Do you have any idea of who might be uh, in in the running for a vice presidential nominee? Um, I think that Judge uh, Jim Gray might be the one. It's kind of up in the air because he is currently also seeking the nomination. But there's a lot of chatter that he would make a great VP to Justin Amash. Um, you know, outside of the party, we've heard things like um, potentially uh, Sanford running. I don't think that's really going to happen. Or sorry, Stanford or Mark Sanford. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think the LP would actually allow that to happen. But definitely Jim Gray would be an option. So apart from whether or not Amash has a any chance of uh, actually being elected, um, what's what's the what's what's the case for him? Uh, I mean, in terms of why should someone consider a vote for Justin Amash? Yeah, I think it's an easy win. Um, you know, if Justin Amash represents what you want to see in a candidate and what you would like to see in office, I think you should vote for him. Um, if you believe in fiscal conservatism and social liberalism, I think there's an argument to be made that he's the guy you should be voting for. Um, a lot of voters aren't happy with their two choices, and they shouldn't just bury their heads in the sand and vote for the lesser of two evils. Um, they can vote for someone in something they can believe in. And if it's not Justin Amash, you know, if they're more left-leaning, it might be the Green Party. But I don't think that they should be bullied into voting for someone or something that they don't want. And, you know, the only wasted vote is voting for someone you don't want to see in office and for something you don't believe in. So I know that in the last um, presidential election, there was certain thresholds of the uh, for the uh presidential debate stage of who would actually be on stage. Do we have any idea yet of what those thresholds might be? Do we have to sort of look back to what it was four years ago or have any of the um, networks actually identified what those thresholds might be? And is there any chance that Justin might actually be on a debate stage with Joe Biden and Donald Trump? And do we even have a reason to believe that we're going to have an actual presidential debate uh, with the with the pandemic going on? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good questions there. Um, I think right now we don't really know what's going to happen. There actually is a lawsuit right now pending against the Presidential Debate Committee because of the stuff that they pulled last go around. Um, It's from the Libertarian Party. I think the Green Party is also joined in on it. Um, And this is a lawsuit that's been going on now for, gosh, I don't know, a couple of years at this point. Uh, It's not been settled yet, basically, about the discrimination with the polling and that kind of stuff. 
if Justin Amash gets on that stage, I think that could change the game for a lot of people. A lot of people won't be exposed to him, assuming he's the nominee, um, unless he is on that stage. Most people, you know, they just tune into Fox or CNN and they're not going to cover him. It's got to be something like that where the average person would get a glimpse of him. And I think if you put him next to those two people, visibly, he's a lot different. He's a lot younger. Um, I think also just his voice and his tactics, he doesn't go for the same blows that maybe Trump would. And he also comes off very coherent, like maybe Joe Biden doesn't. Um, So I think that could change a lot of minds. But unfortunately, I think with the pandemic, it's all up in the air if they're even going to have one. And then also they always have these arbitrary polling numbers and stuff that keep the other candidates out. So I don't think it's looking very likely. I actually saw something today where a Biden advisor had floated the idea of doing rallies where Biden would appear via hologram. (laughs) So perhaps that is a way that they could do the presidential debates while maintaining social distancing is having uh, at least Biden and perhaps all of the candidates appear via hologram. Yeah, that's definitely an option. I think the other big thing is um, Trump would pretty much have to agree to this. And I think if he wouldn't agree to doing one, there wouldn't be one at all, even if, say, Biden and Amash had agreed. Um, And I don't know that, you know, he says he wants a debate or he says he'd feel comfortable with it. Um, I think that's still to be seen at this point. So, well, let's talk about Michigan for a second, because uh, presumably the people in Michigan know Justin Amash. I mean, he may not be well known outside of the state, but he is a a representative of, of Michigan. He is, I guess, at this point, the first member of Congress who's a member of the Libertarian Party. What does it look like in Michigan for Justin Amash? Does he have a shot of winning even that state? And maybe put that in context of uh, the zaniness going on with Michigan and some of the more draconian measures that the the governor there has uh, imposed on the state. Well, it's interesting because I think it was November of last year. Um, I think it was an outside group did this random poll of people in Michigan asking, you know, would you vote for Biden or Trump? And then the second question was, if Amash was in that race, who would you vote for? And it actually showed that people who would have voted for Biden otherwise were slowly trickling over to Justin Amash. Now, there's a lot of issues with that poll, the way it was conducted, when it was, things like that. So you can't really take it for all it's worth. Um, But I think definitely Michigan is a place that he would be very viable And if you look at what happened in 2016, Michigan's a state that both Biden and Trump want to win and need to win. So that could definitely throw a wrench in things if, say, Amash won it. Other states that were very competitive in 2016, the Libertarian Party is very prominent in at this point. In terms of throughout the entire party, the most amount of members live in those states. So that's something that could kind of come up. Um, And I think that's why, you know, Biden, his backers are worried that Amash is going to steal this election as if somehow Biden owns it. Um, But that could definitely come up. And I think people outside of Michigan do know Amash. Most people in liberty circles, libertarian, maybe uh, left or sorry, um, right leaning people, they do know him and they really, really respect him. So that could also start to affect things. So. Can you give us some sort of a background on Justin Amash? What's his bio? What's his, he, he up until recently was a Republican. Uh, what's, you know, can you tell, give us sort of a, a the, what, what's a commercial for Justin Amash going to look like and tell, telling us what, who he is? 
I think if Justin were going to run a commercial, it would probably be about how he would represent the majority of Americans and not the two polar opposite fringe groups. Um, He was a Republican, but if you sort of listened to him speak or read anything he wrote, you could tell the underlying ideas were not really GOP. It was way more libertarian, is way more fiscally conservative, way more socially liberal, um, way more constitutionally based compared to his fellow Republicans in Congress. Um, he's the guy that every time a bill would come up, he would read the entire bill, which most members of Congress sadly do not. And then he would go on Twitter and write about and explain what the bill's about and explain why he was voting yay or nay on it, which also most people don't do that. He actually put the time and energy into making sure people understood what was really going on. Um, on the 4th of July last year, he actually had this op-ed and he decided to declare his independence because he did not feel like he was a Republican anymore. Around that time also, you had the impeachment stuff kind of swirling about, and he did go ahead and he was sort of on the pro-impeachment team. It wasn't just sort of this rallying cry of being anti-Trump. I mean, he wrote extensively about his reasons why in terms of the Constitution and different legal issues and things like that. It wasn't sort of what you see from the left. Um, At that point, the left started praising him, and people thought he might be one of these impeachment managers. And since then, obviously... um, he has sort of found his voice and come to terms with the fact that maybe he really wasn't a Republican. Um, He was more of a libertarian. And so he's finally come home to the libertarian party. So back to uh, Michigan, I'm sure you would like to see Justin Amash actually win the presidency, but would there be sort of a consolation prize if because Michigan is so central to both, you know, uh, from an electoral college standpoint, both Biden and Trump really need to win uh, Michigan is going to be one of the, the key elect battleground states. Is it, Will this be a big enough platform for Justin Amash to sort of make his case for a more libertarian, uh, small government um, approach to governance? Will, will this campaign be a way to maybe give the Libertarian Party more credibility going forward by presenting those ideas, particularly in the context of a Republican Party that under Trump has gone a little bit more nationalist is do you find any sort of consolation in the idea that by representing a battleground state like this, he might have sort of an outsized effect on the debate, even if he doesn't even win the state? Yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of people who are in the GOP, I mean, they're not going to be easily swayed outside of it and same with the left. Um, But I think that a lot of independent voters could be easily swayed by this, especially people who find themselves not fitting in into one of these two boxes and see potentially the flaws or potential hypocrisy in one of those two options or maybe both. Um, I think especially in Michigan right now with these executive orders and what the governor has been doing, people are more than ever realizing how important personal liberty and freedom is. And they're realizing how scary things can get if, if government gets too big. And Justin's big platform is sort of, you know, I want the government to be as small as possible and I want people to have the most amount of freedom and liberty to live their lives as they see fit. It's not the government's job to come in and save you from yourself. And it's not the government's job to come in and tell you what you can and can't do, where you can and can't go, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think people will relate to that. And also, he's a very eloquent speaker. He's very well read. Um, I think that could also play very well because in the past, other candidates I think, have been accused of being, you know, not serious from the Libertarian Party. Outsiders perceive that. Or they made fun of Gary Johnson for the Aleppo moment or for smoking weed. I think with Amash, it's going to be a lot harder to find those things if you're trying to, you know, make fun of him or downgrade his 
his commitment to what he's doing. Okay, so let's turn now to the coronavirus and America's response to the coronavirus. Obviously, there's a lot of blame to go around, uh, but one interesting feature of some of the early screw-ups that I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention has to do with the role of the FDA. So perhaps you could just give us a little background on what what happened with the FDA and the early period of the coronavirus response uh, back in January, February, March? So I think one of the first things people don't realize, because um, they keep comparing the U.S. to South Korea, and nobody can figure out why South Korea was so ahead of the U.S. in terms of how many people are getting tested. So on January 27th, South Korea's leaders went to the private companies, the private labs, and said, we need a test, go make one, and we will give you the emergency use authorizations. Um, on February 4th, they had their first approved test. Back in the U.S., first of all, the first thing was the World Health Organization had a test, and the U.S. refused to use it. The U.S. decided that they wanted to make their own test, and it had to be the CDC's test. So they spent time developing a test, and when it was finally done, the first round of it actually didn't work. It was contaminated because, ironically, they didn't even follow their own guidelines when they manufactured this. It was manufactured incorrectly. Um, They would not allow private labs to use tests that they had made that either matched the World Health test or the CDC's test for quite some time. And when they did start letting these private labs use these tests, what they were making them do is double test for efficacy. So you're talking about wasting two tests on every single person. They had to mail it to Atlanta for the CDC's headquarters for them to look at it and approve it. And then you have healthcare workers risking their lives, and they're using so much PPE materials that you're going through it twice as fast for no reason. In South Korea, what they did is they decided to go make this, take the risk of, okay, we're going to get tests out now and check efficacy later. Whereas the U.S. would not send out a test until they confirmed that they thought it was effective. Um, And then it just kept snowballing. Different labs slowly were getting um, authorizations. Labs actually made um, at-home tests like sort of like Everly Well, where it would come in your house, you would do the swab and mail it back. And the FDA shut that down. But now here we are a couple weeks later, and now they're saying that they will allow some of those. They've been behind the mark on everything, and it's they've been so overly cautious that it's actually cost tons of lives, potentially. Yeah, it is kind of amazing. And, you know, even seems like a, a, so many years ago now, but the when we finally did get confirmed uh, cases of community spread in the United States in Washington, part of the reason why that was able to happen is because... Uh, some researchers there were able to exploit a loophole where technically they they tested some people who didn't didn't meet the testing guidelines, but they were doing a study, so they were they were able to kind of sneak it in there. And because of that, it was appear apparent that the virus was spreading a lot more extensively than had been officially acknowledged. And so even that, if it had not been for the you know sort sort of regulatory creativity there, uh, skirting on the edge of civil disobedience, it would have been even worse. And uh, I don't even, even since then, it does not seem to me like there has been any recognition, not only of mistakes, but of a changed course going forward, where there's at least half a dozen instances I could point to where 
whether it's uh, at-home tests or making hand sanitizer or a bunch of other stuff, the FDA just views its job in stopping people from doing things that, that may save lives. Yeah, and I think you're right about, I think it was the Seattle flu study. Um, they sort of early on were conducting a normal flu study and caught wind of this and they started wondering, well, what if we take those swabs we already have and test them for coronavirus to see if there was community spread? And whenever they contacted the FDA and CDC, they were told to shut it down and not do it. Um, they went ahead and did it anyways. And then once they did confirm those cases, they went back to the FDA and CDC again and they have these emails where they said, we've done this and the, you know we have these cases that are confirmed. And morally, they had this obligation, they felt, to tell the FDA and the CDC about this because this means that potentially more lives are at risk, even though they know they had done something wrong in terms of the regulations and stuff that they've been told uh, to follow and not you know, uh, work around. But yeah, if they hadn't done that and they chose to follow these regulations, we probably would have been even more behind the mark. Instead of you know the U.S. first getting a, a test approved by February 29th, it could have been March 29th for who knows. I mean, we don't know. And so because they were brave and they took that chance, we did start to know stuff around uh, January, February. But unfortunately, it wasn't fast enough. What can be done to change the situation or update reform the current regulatory structure uh, other than firing everybody at the FDA <laughs> and uh, raising the building, salt in the earth so nothing can ever grow there again? You know, th those are just some ideas that yeah. come to mind. But uh, is there anything else that we might be able to do? I mean, I think the first thing is, um, you know, these emergency use authorizations, they're going to go away once the um, the sort of pandemic or um, whatever you want to call it. There's different terms with written regulation. You can call things and you get the emergency use authorization. Um, but once that period is passed, all these things are going to go back to normal. So that's not good. Um, we need to start making these regulations that we have that we've changed during the pandemic permanent. Anything that could get tests approved faster, vaccines approved faster, anything that can get products um, made faster like hand sanitizer, face masks. If it was done to make things happen on a quicker pace for the pandemic, it should be allowed afterwards. Um, I mean, there's tons and tons of regulations that you know have been moved or slightly suspended during this time. But if they're able to be slightly suspended now and things are going fine, you don't have upticks of people dying from this or that, then why can't we keep those suspended permanently here on out? Um, I think also the CDC and the FDA have to realize that this isn't about checking boxes. We're talking about patients' lives. And at this point, every time they just keep in, you know, making more and more of these regulations and more and more red tape, you're actually costing human lives. They're not just numbers. They're mothers and fathers and sisters and children and grandchildren. I don't think they realize that. Um, and it's the same thing. It goes into right to try. These are people's lives, and they should have the ability to try and save their life with whatever means they feel necessary. The government should not be able to come in and say, you're not allowed to take this medicine. The governor of Michigan should not be able to tell a doctor what they can and can't prescribe. That does not make sense to me. And I think those things need to change. Just, I have a question for you. Because I've seen you tweet something to the effect of, you know, there's there's not adequate testing. We should be testing so much more. But you, you said something uh, that I, I caught one of your tweets maybe a week ago. Um, sort of cryptically that says something along the lines of, well, I know how we could do more testing. What did you have in mind? 
Ah, well, so I have a variety of ideas, none of which are particularly original to me, but that I have picked up over the course of weeks, because it seems like it's an important question of how you could increase our testing capacity, because the more tests you can do, the more you can find people before they infect other people and, and try and contain and nip the virus spread in the bud. So probably one of the biggest uh, value ideas is what is called pooled testing, where instead of taking a single person sample and testing that, you take a bunch of different samples and test them together and then either uh, put markers within the sample so you can tell which part of the sample is tested positive or you can uh, divide up the sample uh, and do kind of staggered testing. So with a little bit of math, you can actually figure out if a, if a sample comes back positive and it's got 10 samples in it, you can actually figure it out which, which, of, the, which of the 10 would, is, the, is the source of the positive. So if you were to do that, you could pro this is this is being done, I believe, in Nebraska. But uh, overall, I think doing that alone would increase our testing capacity by something like a factor of seven times, perhaps. Um, in addition, another thing, you know, one problem that we have with the tests is, and this is less of a, it's becoming less of a problem as we have more testing, but particularly early on, is we would only test people if we were fairly certain that they had COVID-19. So our, our positive right. rates were really high. And that seems like a waste of a test. If you were pretty sure that a person has COVID-19, what you wanted to be doing is testing people where they either don't have serious symptoms or they're, they're in the early phase of the infection. So shifting shifting who, who gets priority for testing is important. And then, of course, uh, within that, a, a third idea is right now we, we've kind of divided up the tests by state, but uh, they're not, they're, they're, there's a lack of focus. The focus of the testing is on people who are really sick. There are certain places like in the White House where they test everybody every day. And it might be good to use some of the testing more in that in those situations, what you know, particularly for critical infrastructure or vulnerable places like uh, nursing home employees or people at meatpacking plants, where we know there's a, a significant chance of outbreak. Just test, just test everybody who is working in those places. Test them periodically, and that, that way you could probably uh, cut down on on those. Outbreak. So th those are a couple ideas. I have I have many more, but you know that's just kind of give you a flavor of it. Alrighty. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the stories that have come out of Texas recently. Um, we had a uh, a lot of national news coverage that still seems to be ongoing even uh, today as we're recording this. I'm seeing stories about Shelley Luther, the uh, beautician who opened up her salon, Salon a la Mode before Governor Abbott's order was lifted. And um, as I understand it, um, she took the um, SBA loan for the pay, payroll protection program um, and yet still proceeded to uh, open up her salon 
against the governor's orders. And she was then, I guess, arrested, sentenced to seven days in jail and a fine. Lindsay, tell us a little bit about what you know about this and uh, the great injustice that happened to Shelley Luther. Yeah, I think this is a case where um, it's just senseless sentencing. So at the end of her, I guess you could say, hearing, um, the judge basically told her how selfish she was and that she needed to publicly apologize to the legislatures, or legislators, sorry, um, whose law she decided to not obey. And that if she did that, she wouldn't go to jail. And she stood up and she said, I will not apologize. I needed to feed my kids. And if that's selfish, then I am selfish. And she talked about the other hairstylists at the salon and how they were having um, trouble paying for their bills and feeding their kids. So he sent her to jail. He was, she was sentenced for seven days. And the thing about this story that really gets me is the fact that he he's trying to punish her for violating um, this order and also potentially hurting the, the health and the safety of the community. So what he does is he takes her and he sends her to Dallas County Jail, which out of every jail in the entire state of Texas has the most amount of COVID cases, and it's been making national news for that. When you're in jail, you cannot social distance, you don't have hand sanitizer, you don't have masks, and most of the time you can't even wash your hands. Uh, There's actually a lawsuit at that jail right now because people aren't being able to change their clothes for two weeks at a time, aren't given showers for a week at a time, and there's even patients with COVID there. One guy actually was put in a dorm with 60 other people and wasn't moved for four days even though he had COVID. So the judge takes this lady sends her to this place, and then decides he's going to, after seven days, she can go back home. Well, what does that do then? She goes there. She's going to probably be exposed to coronavirus, and then she's going to go back home into the community and potentially infect other people. Now, assuming the judge thought that her actions were bad and she might have actually already been exposed by doing these haircuts, then that's even worse as well because he's then knowingly taking somebody who might have been exposed And putting her around people that are correctional workers, contractors, inmates, um, and other other people that were going to be in and out of that jail. And she's then potentially bringing it in, infecting those people. Either way, it's a complete danger to the community. And I think the judge should be apologizing. I don't know either way if you think her actions were right or wrong. I don't think anyone can disagree with how bad of a choice that was in terms of community safety for the judge to send her to jail, especially that jail at this time. Now, I guess as an update, if I'm if I understand the facts correctly, uh, after the fact, Governor Abbott um, revised his order at, at retroactively, um, so that there would be so that the order that would author this Texas statewide order that would authorize um, jail time for violating an order to shut down a business that's been reversed, so that there could only be fines. Um, in situations like this. So uh, what's your perspective on that? Do you think that Abbott did the right thing there? Yeah, I think he did the right thing from reversing it, but that means from the get-go, he didn't necessarily do the right thing because from the get-go when he originally wrote it, it did allow for that. And he thought that was fine at the time. It wasn't until there was so much national attention and phone calls from celebrities and reform groups and people across the country that finally this got changed. And I'm glad it was changed, but it took a lot to get that. You know, if, if Shelley Luther's case hadn't made the national news, would it have changed? Um, there are other people in Texas that similar things were happening to. I think there was two women who were doing manicures at their house, and that case didn't get the same attention, 
unfortunately, but they weren't the only ones doing this and they're not the only ones that are suffering the consequences. So one of the ongoing topics that we've had on on our show is Josiah and I talk a lot about the future of conservatism, and there's this idea that in the you know earlier times during the Reagan era and sort of part of the William F. Buckley movement, there's this fusionist time of conservatives and libertarians that all played nicely together, and that's uh, that's being challenged now. Uh, but when I see this Shelley Luther situation, I see the libertarians very much worked up about it, but I also see the nationalist breed of conservatives worked up about this sort of thing. Do you think this is finally that moment where we can kind of get the band back together and get all the, the nationalists and the libertarians back together rallying around Shelley Luther? No, I don't think so. I think they'll stick together for a few days and then break up again. Um, I think the social issues are still the issue that's going to divide libertarians from conservatives or Republicans. Um, that's always going to be the line in the sand. I don't see libertarians budging on it, and I don't see Republicans or conservatives budging on that either. On that point, what do you really think that libertarians are going to, back to our t- conversation about Justin Amash, do you think that libertarians are going to uh, ad- you know, accept somebody like Justin Amash, who's a former Republican and is so clean cut, uh, he doesn't have the street cred of pot smoking <laughs> Gary uh, Gary Johnson? Do you think that he's a viable candidate for the, for the libertarians? If you're right, that libertarians are much more concerned about uh, distancing themselves from conservatives on the social issues. I don't think they're so concerned with it. I just think that they're not willing to give up 50% of their beliefs and principles to align with a group that, you know, won't do the same either. And neither party should have to give up their principles to join forces. Um, you know, the libertarians aren't just about smoking pot or whatever people like to stereotype them as. The underlying idea behind libertarianism is that you don't believe in government intervention in your life in terms of your the economic part or the social part. And that's what's really going to divide them from the other two parties. Um, I think within the Libertarian Party, a lot of people are backing Justin Amash. But just like every other party, um, there are inter-party issues and purity tests. And so there are factions of people who don't want to see him um, being the nominee, that he's not pure enough, that he's not, you know, the, the person that they would like to see out there. I think at the end of the day, they're going to nominate him as their candidate. I think they should. I think he's the best person as far as getting vote tallies because they do need ba- uh, ballot access in a lot of states. And in some states, you do get ballot access based on how many people voted for your presidential candidate the previous election year. So that does matter to people. Um, I think as far as street cred goes, I mean, he's extremely well-read. Like, if you put him with some of the more radical libertarians, they could probably go toe-to-toe quoting the same stuff back and forth. What about uh, what about Vince Vaughn? Uh, he is a prominent libertarian, correct? Uh, couldn't somebody like Vince Vaughn jump into the race and challenge Justin Amash? And wouldn't that make the uh, the president presidential race more interesting? With uh, you know, with could you imagine a debate stage with Vince Vaughn, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden? I mean, I think that would be exciting. And and you could throw in there Jesse Ventura. I mean, why not? I mean, God, that's far-fetched. Um, I think it's far-fetched in the terms of the party electing him or nominating him as the, the the nominee. And I think for him, it would be the nail in the coffin for his career. A lot of people don't realize how deeply entrenched the Democratic Party is in Hollywood. Um, they already know he is a libertarian, or actually to them, because they don't understand what a libertarian is. They just say he's a Republican or a Trump uh, fan. But if they knew the extent of it and they saw him out stumping for ideas that were against their own and stumping against their candidate, 
I don't think he would get booked for another job. I think that would be the last day working in Hollywood, which is really sad. Um, but one thing you did ask me earlier, and I'm just kind of remembering it now, you asked about would libertarians accept Amash because he used to be a Republican? And I don't think anyone should really hold that against him. The party, the Libertarian Party, was just founded in 1971. So you don't have a ton of, you know, second, third, and fourth generation libertarians, if at all. Um, so most people in the party used to be a Republican or Democrat, thought they were, um, or an independent until they realized there was another option that fit them better, or, you know, their ideology kind of changed as they did more reading and research and, and whatnot. Um, but I don't think that should disqualify them at all because we all came from somewhere else to begin with. You're only starting to see now second generation libertarians um, and soon hopefully we'll have third and fourth. Let me ask a broader question about uh, libertarians and pandemics because it seems like there is a problem here. There's normally, you know, the, the kind of overarching libertarian line is that people should be allowed to do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting others. But when you have a, an epidemic with an infectious disease like that, you can, without knowing it, give it to somebody else and they can die. Uh, and of course, you mentioned, you know, that Shelley Luther was sent into this jail where there were possible, where she could have been exposed to the coronavirus. I, I don't think she should have been sent to jail, but it's true that after she got out of jail again, she went back to giving haircuts and I saw some photos. She was hugging a bunch of people. Uh, so what it, you know so supposing that you know she picked up covid and, and gave it to some other people and they uh, died because you know she was giving these haircuts or whatever what what is the proper libertarian response to that ooh that's a very deep question um so there's a lot of angles within that i think first of all when she got out um there are certain precautions she should take and take every you know every haircut she gives and um, every person she sees, so wearing masks, using hand sanitizer, making sure the salon's extremely clean, having, you know, the those plastic little guards up around the different chairs. All those things, I think that's something that goes along with personal responsibility, which is a big part of libertarianism. Um, obviously, nothing is perfect and you cannot guarantee anything 100%. And I would be very hard-pressed, I think, for people to be able to actually link it back to one person, especially if it's a salon and those people are, those customers are going to other stores and things afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think there's a duty as a person and when you go out to do certain things and when you go home, wash your hands, um, you know, be very cautious about if you feel sick, not going anywhere, making the right choices so that you aren't potentially harming other people. And I think, you know, when this whole pandemic first started, we were being lied to in a lot of ways. You know, we kept hearing it's just going to blow over. It'll be done when the spring comes around. Oh, there's no community spread oh, you can't get it from being on a plane with people. Masks don't work. All these things. And it's like, yeah, I can understand a lot of people's frustration because they keep being lied to. So at the end of the day, they're eventually going to have enough and just want to go on with their daily lives. But if I think there had been way more truth-telling from the beginning, people would have been way more amicable in terms of, okay, yeah, I understand the importance of this. I understand how scary this could be. I'm going to take the proper precautions for myself and my family so that I'm not doing harm to anybody else. And, and on that note, you've been proactive about uh, personal protection equipment. Uh, tell us about your little side venture. So I've been making masks now, I guess, since the end of March. Um, and I've been giving them to healthcare workers, essential workers, 
um, the elderly, people that have immune system issues, people who just want them. Um, you know, obviously the CDC has changed their minds multiple times times on masks. Um, but if people feel that, that they could benefit from them, I want to make sure that they have them. Um, you know, and also now stores are saying you can't come in unless you have one. So I don't want someone to not be able to go get groceries or go to the bank or whatever it is because they don't have a mask. Um, they're very easy to make. They're very cheap to make. And so I think that's just something that I can do and help out um, because when all this sort of started, I was watching the news obsessively and it was the most depressing thing of all time. And then you start to feel really helpless because unless you're a doctor or a nurse or certain you know, um, roles in society, it feels like you can't do anything and everything's just crumbling around you. And my best friend's a nurse and she sent me an email from the CEO of the hospital saying, we need people to make masks now. It's not a matter of if we run out, it's we are going to run out of normal PPE and we need something as a backup. And so that's kind of how I started doing it. And then I just kept doing it because it was keeping me busy and it was fun and people needed them. All right. Well, Lindsay, Marie, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks for having me and congratulations on 100 episodes. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.